namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namatsami for i respond to this question tonight or the questions I think Ajahn Abhinanda didn't introduce Ajahn Tanasanti, and it's a, a great pleasure to have her staying with us. I think it's 10 years since she was here last. We have met each other on the other side of the planet, I think. Uh, but 10 years is a long time, so uh, we're very happy that she's managed to uh, escape the, um, the clutches of, of down south. And uh, I think you're here till Thursday, yeah, and we're very happy to have her. Ajantana Sunday, originally from New York? No. California. I thought she was East Coast. Okay. West Coast. And has been uh, training at Amarawati and Chithurst and also spent time in Australia and New Zealand and various other places. So I'm sure she'd be happy to meet with any of you that'd like to um, come and say hello. This question that often comes up about when it's time to actually do something and when it's time to just wait. Now, this, this tends to come up often in, in practice. And sometimes people will, you know, you can read teachings or hear teachings about you know, there's all sorts of techniques. You do this technique and go through these various stages and there's a lot of doing, doing, doing. And, and you, you might have experienced it yourself or you might have seen other people can do this for a very long time. And, uh, and not really find any contentment until they, until they get to the point where they discover not doing, where they let go of their techniques and, and find suddenly, much to their surprise, they're just sitting there doing nothing and they're very happy. And then they start feeling guilty. Well, I'm supposed to be meditating. This, is, this can't be all right. I can't be just sitting there being. That's, you know, what about all these stages of attainment? What about Sotapana, Sakadagami, Anagami and Arahant? All the stages and the various stages you've got to go through. Well, and also with things like, for instance, cultivating uh, loving kindness. Uh, this, this comes up often in practice for people. I, some people will have a real strong reaction to the idea that you've got to cultivate loving kindness. They say, well, you know, loving kindness, if it's a real thing, it should just come naturally. Yeah. or mindfulness, awareness should just come naturally well this is true actually there is and if you practice for a while you can start to feel how perfectly natural it is to be just simply aware or how perfectly natural it is to, to have a sense of caring, of kindness and then you think well, what's the place of techniques then and so a lot of people do get into a quandary over the relationship to techniques. When you're supposed to do something, when you're doing meditation and when is meditation doing you? Now, with all uh, dilemmas, I, uh, as you've probably heard me said, say once or twice before, a dilemma is a gift. And if you come across such a dilemma, should I do something or should I just be here? You know, that's a dilemma. Well, it's a gift. And the first approach is... Uh, so 
always encourage people is to, to respect the dilemma, to appreciate the dilemma. Because what we call a dilemma is where we've reached a point where I can't handle it. I can't sort this out. I, who like to think that he can handle pretty well anything, but knows very well he can't, but nevertheless still likes to get around pretending he can, you know, this I, when you've got a dilemma, this I is feeling deeply challenged. That's good. That's very good. You know, I always encourage people to put your hands together in Anjali and, and pay respect to the dilemma when your personal little dilemma comes along, and not to rush to solve it. Not to rush to solve because the dilemma will undo us, actually. There's many dilemmas and many dimensions of life that, whether it's in you know, external relationship situations, somebody's being really obnoxious and, and you really want to tell them, and I'm being seriously obnoxious, I don't just mean mildly obnoxious, I'm being really seriously obnoxious, and, and, but you're full of anger about it. And you suspect if you tell them, it's not going to get through. But if nobody tells them, when are they going to stop doing that, whatever it is that they're doing? So maybe I'm just too scared. Maybe I'm chicken. I'm a wimp. It's, I should just really just face up to this character and really put them in their place. And Well, maybe I should just wait and, until I've got perfect equanimity. And that's the sort of dilemma many people come up with. So, and also you know, more subtle dilemmas, and you know, certainly in, in meditation you can get the, the sort of thing I'm talking about now. Should I change my meditation object, or should I keep doing this meditation object? Well, the thing to notice when we get to these points is just, aha, dilemma. Don't know. Very good. Very good. And to respect the energy that comes from that. If we can hold the dilemma... If we can receive the dilemma mindfully, what happens is it's like, it's like the awareness has to expand to accommodate the energy that's being generated by the dilemma. If we hold the dilemma too tightly, it'll become frustrating. I feel frustrated. I feel frustrated. I don't know what to do. You know that feeling? Nobody's nodding their head. I'm surprised. <laughs> I know that feeling very, very well. But I've learned to welcome that feeling. Because what that feeling is, that feeling is the point where, where I limit myself. That's the feeling of the limitations I impose on awareness. And I might want to expand awareness. I might have, want to have vast awareness. But it's not something I can do because actually I am that, that symptom of limitation that is imposed on awareness. That's what I am. I am that limitation. There isn't any I outside of that. So I can't, as an act of will, expand my awareness. But when we reach... When we get something that frustrates us, we get a dilemma, that will actually, if we hold it in the right way, if we appreciate it, if we're interested in it, and we welcome it, we don't resent it, don't fight it, don't judge it, we just welcome it, then the energy generated that we're being currently experienced as frustration, that same energy will cause us to expand our awareness, to accommodate it. And then we've got more space, and then we can get interested. So that's always the place to start with any dilemma that comes along. Anything that we feel like is frustrating us. If we don't do that, well then what happens is the energy tends to come up, trouble our hearts, trouble our minds, and then come out through our mouth and we start telling somebody how they're frustrating us or somehow blaming life for frustrating us. And of course, the reality is that we're just not 
got enough space to accommodate all this good energy that's there, trying to teach us something. So with this dilemma about doing and being, should I do my meditation? Or can I just wait for it to come naturally? And the first approach I would suggest is to recognize the dilemma, recognize we don't know what to do, and, and appreciate that. And if we have found some, some contentment, as I was saying in the beginning, in the introduction to the meditation, contentment is the basis of meditation, really. A willingness to be with what is, is contentment. It's not liking, but it's a willingness, a complete willingness, a complete surrender of judgment and, and rejection and fighting. It is, it's a complete willingness to receive this experience. Not agreeing, disagreeing, liking or disliking, just a willingness. And the contentment that comes out of that when we have such contentment as the foundation of practice, well, then we can start to investigate. And so with something like, for instance, should I cultivate loving kindness or should I just wait for it to come naturally? Because it is quite clear that you know, love is one of the most natural things. Like the Buddha talked about the love of a mother with her only child. Unless the mother is seriously troubled, it, it happens most naturally. There's this experience of selflessness. It's in nature. It's just, and you can see it in nature. And it is the most natural thing. And somebody recently sent me some photographs. They were the most charming thing. You might have seen them. This is um, a friend of mine who used to be here as an Anagarika, Vladan Vilimelovich, who's now he's, uh, he lives in Korea as Okwang Sanim. He's a, a big shoe in Korea. And, he sent me these photographs recently um, from Kenya of a one-year-old hippopotamus called Owen and a hundred-year-old tortoise, and they've become partners. And this hundred-year-old tortoise, actually a male, but he's mothering this, this um, one-year-old hippopotamus. Because, you know, 100 years old, he's obviously been around for a while, and he realizes this hippopotamus needs a mother. And what happened, apparently, was uh, these floods came along, and this poor little hippo um, was washed down the river out to the Indian Ocean. And hippos are very social animals, and they, they need to be mothered for, I think, three or four years. And this poor hippo, 300 kilos, mind you, only, you know, <laughs> quite a hippo, but he's still a baby hippo, I don't know how they found out all this, whether they asked him or what, but anyway, this is what they say happened, was he got washed down the river, out in the Indian Ocean, then the tsunami came along, and the tsunami wave pushed him back up again, and he ended up way inland again. And uh, he was found and rescued, thank goodness, and, and they put him in the park, and, and, and he looked around to find mum. Of course, he was traumatised and couldn't find mum, but he found this 100-year-old turtle. And they bonded. It's the most lovely relationship. These photographs are so charming. They swim together, they eat together, they sleep together. And, and uh, so anyway, I thought it was a lovely thing to look at, this perfectly uh, natural example of, of loving kindness. It's there. It's in nature. It couldn't be more obvious. couldn't be more natural. And yet the fact is that a lot of the time we don't feel loving. You know, although it's true, that, like awareness. Awareness is it's the most natural thing. You know, a child is born and just these eyes and senses and just is aware and and it is the most natural thing to be aware and yet a lot of the time you know we're not really abiding in that pristine uh, awareness are we and so 
whilst it might be true, whilst it is true, that, that a lot of the qualities that we're talking about cultivating a practice are perfectly natural, I think it, it's, it can be said that sometimes we need to quick start them, if you like. I remember when I uh, was a kid at Sunday school, you know, I, uh, that um, Mr. Campbell, he used to have this old car that used to have to start with a crank. I don't think they ever do that anymore these days. But after Sunday school, you'd go out and Mr. Campbell's car used to have to crank it. And, uh, and that sometimes, that idea of, of quick starting something or cranking something also applies in, in the spiritual life. That even though it, it's absolutely true that love is perfectly natural, if we live in fear long enough, our hearts can be encased in frozen, solid resistance to life. And even though we might remember what loving is, and even maybe we cry when we see it on the movies or we see selflessness in some situation and it moves us to tears and we might want to love, we might desperately want to love. Everybody desperately wants to love. That's why they sing songs and write poems about it. Everybody desperately wants to love more than anything else. But, but it doesn't really work a lot of the time, just wanting. And so the Buddha, with his wisdom, recognizes. And, and so in encouraging us to cultivate the meditation loving kindness or compassion, karuna, I think it was a recognition of the fact that, yes, although this is perfectly natural, loving kindness, sometimes we need to quick start the process. And, and that's how I understand these things. So if we find, for instance, that, as a lot of Westerners do anyway, that cultivating loving kindness is unattractive, thoroughly unattractive, then we can start with something like the cultivation of compassion, which is quite different. It's not... People don't always understand that there is a, a profound difference between metta and kruna or loving-kindness and compassion. With loving-kindness, the, the messages, the wish, the feeling, the tone is, may you be well, may I be well. In fact, it's, you know, cultivation of this meditation starts off with, may I be well. Well, if you've got an accumulation of hurt and pain and disappointment in your life, then you know, maybe it's too difficult to generate that feeling that you might think the thought until the cows come home, but it doesn't necessarily connect with anything in your heart. It doesn't do that melting that needs to happen. But with the meditation on compassion, which is quite different, the thought, the suggestion that is given in, 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 in trying to quick-start this process is the thought, may I be free from suffering? Now, that's quite different because we don't have to be in a good space. We don't have to be in a good space to think that thought. We can be in a very bad space. And one of the things that I've found works and, and use myself is that I find it a very, very useful meditation is even when I'm feeling good, to, to, to bring to mind, to bring to heart a feeling of when I've not been feeling good. So in the mind, conjure up a memory of Something unpleasant has happened. Uh, some being misunderstood, which happens all the time. I always feel misunderstood. But, you know, perhaps it's being misunderstood by somebody who I really want to be understood by, and that can hurt. Or unloved, uncared for, rejected. We well, can all come up with feelings of suffering. And 
thinking the thought, having the memory, maybe an image, and then feeling what it's like in our hearts, in our bodies, maybe it's in our guts, maybe that pain of, of being rejected, unloved. And then very carefully in the mind, thinking of somebody that you really care about, somebody you, you care deeply for, and imagining, very carefully, imagining them, imagining them having that suffering. Imagining them having the suffering that you know, this pain that you know. Imagining them having that suffering. And immediately the heart comes out with this feeling, may they be free from suffering, may they not have such suffering. Yeah. So in this way, we, we, in other words, we're triggering quick-starting this, this natural compassionate energy. May beings be free from suffering. And that becomes the meditation theme. Yeah. And so we did have to do something to trigger it. And once we've triggered it, well, then it can become a meditation object, a wonderful meditation object. You can hold the feeling, this wishing that this person you care for be free from suffering, not experience the sort of suffering that you've known for yourself. And so you consciously feel this feeling and wish this wish and think the thought, may they be free from suffering. And then as it becomes more clear, you can move to other people. May they be free from suffering. And then the suggestion is you move towards people that you, you're neutral towards, you don't necessarily know anything about, you know, like, like the postman who delivers the mail, you know, or somebody you see walking down the street. Just feeling that feeling, they suffer too. May they be free from suffering. And then even people that you positively detest, if there are any people that you positively detest or you think are evil, and somebody on the planet that you, you think is really a rotten egg, serious rotten egg, trying to connect with them as a human being. And then, of course, coming round to this one as well, may I be free from suffering, just like all beings. May all beings be free from suffering. And if we do this with interest, with sincerity, well, then we can experience quite naturally this kind of melting that I was talking about before with the the the... the unfortunate consequences of having lived our life in fear out of ignorance and delusion and the sort of rigidity that, and resistance that encases our hearts and we can start to feel it melt. And so in a way, yes, there's a, definitely a place for using technique. Even though compassion, loving kindness are the most natural things, sometimes we need to quick start it and and likewise, with, 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 with awareness, with the cultivation of awareness. Say, so, well, you know, awareness is perfectly natural. I'll just be aware. Say, well, that's good, but if we've made a lot of effort to distract ourselves from reality, which many of us have, probably most of us have, sometimes for a very long time, sometimes for lifetimes, we're committed to distraction for lifetimes, and then we get inspired by the possibility of presence. We see a great master, somebody... You read, I remember when I first read Sri Ramana Maharshi about his teaching, this, this wonderful saint who uh, died in the early 50s, I think. And uh, when he was, I think, 16 years old, he, he had this inspiration to just disappear back into the source of his being or whatever. And he was lying on the floor, and so he decided that he would just die right there and then. But he didn't die. He just suddenly reverted into being at one with his true being and, and had this amazing enlightenment experience, which never left him. And that was the age of 16. I thought, wow, that's great. Yeah, I'd like some of that. And so just be. And, yeah. <laughs> well, what's on television tonight? <laughs> yeah, I could get a piece of toast. I'd like a piece of toast with avocado and, and, and Vegemite. Ooh, avocado and Vegemite, my favorite. Oh, what about being? Oh, <laughs> 
being aware. <laughs> I really want to be aware. Yeah, I wonder if I should get one of those new iPods. There's one that's got pictures on it, you know. <laughs> My iPod's so old-fashioned. You know what I mean? You really want to be aware. We want presence. It's so inspiring. You see some being who's, who's just radiating presence. And say, oh, I want that. But just wanting it or just trying to do it as an act of will doesn't do it, even though it is perfectly natural. So with that understanding, yes, it's perfectly natural. We're not trying to create some artificial awareness. We're not trying to cultivate some artificial, smarmy, loving kindness and going around giving love stares at everybody. That's, that's not... <laughs> Let me leave that to the 60s. <laughs> that's what we're talking about. Yes, it's reconnecting with something perfectly natural. It's connecting with Dhamma. I mean, Dhamma means nature. So it's rediscovering or discovering, uncovering but we need to do something sometime to uncover what's there. And so if we acknowledge that we have these habits of distraction, well, then the cultivation of awareness is not trying to build awareness that's not there. It's trying to return to or rediscover original awareness. And so we do need to sit sometimes, focus on a meditation object like the breath, or, you know, counting each breath, each out-breath, one, to up to ten and then ten, nine, eight, back down to one. And the next time up to one, two, three, up to nine, and then nine, eight, back to one. Next time, one, two, three, up to eight, eight, back down to one. One up to seven, seven down to one. One up to six, six down to one. One up to five, five down to one. One up to four, four down to one. One up to three, three down to one. One up to two, two, one, one. And then back up again to ten. And to do that, to really exercise discipline of attention and then to feel the benefit. And then what we discover is what a, you know, we don't start thinking about a new iPod or toast with avocado and marmite or whatever else it is that we tend to get distracted by. We, we discover some steadiness of mind. Yeah. And so we might spend years working with techniques which is fine. It's not because we're trying to create or make the mind become a certain way, but we're trying to inhibit the way we are with ourselves, which means that we always dilute the mind with our habitual distractions. We're trying to inhibit the distraction tendencies, and that's worth doing. Yeah, just like, for instance, if you're not very healthy and because you eat a lot of junk food well, and want to get healthy. Well, you, know, you can't just imagine being healthy. You can't just suddenly become healthy, take a healthy pill. All you have to do is inhibit the tendency to eat junk food. Well, similarly with the mind, there is a place, a very important place, to use techniques so as to inhibit the tendencies of distraction until we get back to something that's more natural. And then we might discover, yes, we can. There are times that we can just sit there and I do, myself, encourage people sometimes, stop meditating. Sometimes people talk about their meditation. I think, well, I think you should stop meditating. That's what you should do, just stop meditating. It's not doing any good at all. Now, stop it completely. You say, you mean I should stop sitting? I say, no, no, keep sitting. Just don't meditate. Sit in an armchair, 20 minutes every day, very important. Sit and don't meditate. Absolutely refuse to meditate. It's very important. It's good practice. 
Very difficult to do. If you're meditating for 20, 30 years, a very good practice. Absolutely refuse to meditate. So anyway, those are some hints on these subjects this evening, and I hope to have some help for your contemplation. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.